Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Marlon Brando is one of the most acclaimed and influential actors of all time. He is also one of the most elusive and enigmatic, featuring exclusive interviews, oh, ex- excuse, featuring exclusive access to Marlon Brando's previously unseen and unheard personal archive, uh, including hundreds of hours of audio. Listen to me, Marlon sheds a light on the artist and the man, charting Brando's exceptional career and extraordinary personal life with the actor himself as the guide. The film explores his complexities, telling his story entirely in his own voice. No talking heads, no interviews, just Brando on Brando. And we are joined today on Film School by the director of this wonderful documentary. He's also wrote it, edited it, and directed it. That would be Stephen Riley. Stephen, welcome to Film School. Thank you for having me. Oh, gosh. This is just a great documentary. Uh, I mean, uh, we just had uh, uh, Morgan Neville, Academy Award winner from uh, uh, Best of Enemies, on two fantastic documentaries today. It's just it's just a, an embarrassment of riches. This, uh, in addition to being uh, about someone who we uh, we think we know a little bit about, tell me, Stephen, where the idea, how you got access, but where did the idea for doing a documentary on Marlon Brando come? Um, well, um, uh, the, the the idea to do the the film entirely in Brando's own words was um, was just uh, was a sort of flight of fancy that I had originally. Um, there was um, uh, there had already been an approach made to the estate by the producers of the film, R.J. Cutler and John Batsek, to ask them whether they would allow uh, permission, you know, documentary to be done on one of them um, um, and to um, access to any of their materials. But um, I, I had um, there was a few tapes that, that, that the, um, the estate um, made available. And in the end, they made their entire archive um, freely available, um, to me, uh, which, was, which was fantastic. And, and I had complete creative freedom to kind of use all the materials, which included the 300 hours of tapes, as you mentioned, audio tapes, yeah. and also all of his um, documentation and home video. And um, you know, a real, you know, a real um, uh, trove of, of, of archive. Um, but um, but even with that, it was um, uh, you know, I I, I just I, I considered the, the the possibility that you imagine if the entire story was told in Marlon's own words, and, um, uh, because maybe if that were ever possible, um, it might solve age-old riddle about who was the real Marlon Brando, um, who was the enigma, the myth. Um, you know, the question one had been trying to answer for um, um, throughout his life and, and since his passing. Yeah. So, so, so I understand this. In even before you got a chance to listen to all of these recordings, it was in your mind that you may be able to do this without any interviews with anybody else. Did you you had it in your mind that you might be able to pull that off as just Brando on Brando? Is that what I understood? Yeah. Yeah. I just thought it would be a, you know, an amazing idea. But that was only on the back of hearing. I had a handful of tapes. Um, um, it, all, all, um, this archive, I should mention, all of the audio tapes, was only just surfacing at the documentary was coming about because um, uh, the, all these boxes that had been um, stored of Marlon's personal effects, they'd been, they'd been housed away for, for 10 years since Marlon's death. 
Coincidentally, as the documentary was um, uh, happening and the archive was being unpacked, and there was, a, as I said, a handful of tapes that I got access to, but they just happened to be really interesting um, audio. One included um, a self-hypnosis tape, yes. which is actually where the title of the film comes from, from the original proposal of Listen to Me, Marlon. And these were um, tapes that Marlon was um, recording to, um, to take himself under. And, um, and to do regressive hypnotherapy on himself to kind of access his childhood and try and solve some of the problems of his youth, which is one of the themes of the film. It's, almost, it's a, um, a Freudian journey into his, into his um, childhood and his upbringing. And, um, and Marlon trying to psychoanalyze, figure out how he became the person he was and, and how some events in his life um, and, um, and even a traumatic event of the... The, the death within his household yes. of his daughter's boyfriend killed by his son Christian, um, how, how any that could have come to pass. Um, so um, so uh, there was, from the, um, the, the hypnotherapy and, and a few others, I just, I, I had, I had uh, an early ambition of, um, you know, you know, imagine if that was all done in Marlon's own words, but it was just an ambition at that point because the remaining tapes hadn't been transcribed. More tapes had to come out of the boxes. So um, wow. it, was, um, it was something that sort of evolved because I went out to the States and I spoke to um, as many people as I could possibly um, arrange meetings with who knew Marlon personally um, just so I could in, uh, enrich my knowledge of him and, and just figure out some of his complexities. I mean, there's no doubt that Marlon was a very complex man. Yeah. And, um, and through reading the books and meeting these uh, the books that were available and meeting um, 40 or so characters from his life, I was developing a deeper knowledge and also kind of covering myself that if things, you know, if things didn't work out and, and there wasn't enough material in the I, I could... I could um, Steve, Stephen, are you back? Hey there. So yeah. I'm, not so, I'm not sure when, when you lost me. Could, I don't know if you could hear it. It sounded like uh, you were being attacked by aliens. So, so I, I just... <laughs> I'm sorry. That's what, I, that's what I, I thought you were being attacked by aliens. That's <laughs> oh, strange yeah, thing. Okay. <laughs> well, I was just going to say to our audience, there are people... Because Marlon Brando has been gone for about, as you said, about a decade or so, and he... People have to understand, he is arguably the greatest American actor of all time, and his his influence and sway goes back to really changing. He, along with James Dean, are credited with changing uh, the way we, we know acting to be in films uh, and going back to A Streetcar Named Desire and On the Waterfront. And he he was... Arguably, and I, I don't know where you where you come down on this. The greatest actor uh, America has ever produced would that would that be something you would argue for, or would you think he was just a great actor? I I, I really would, and uh, and and mine I, I should add was a voyage of discovery. I mean, I I knew Marlon's great role. I'd seen The Godfather, I'd seen um, Last Tango and Apocalypse. They're among my favorite films, but I didn't really, I hadn't ever tried to dissect you know what made him special, um, but. Um, there was, you know, a lot that I, I figured out that was very unique to Marlon. Um, I think that um, the the range of his own personal experience, the uh, the emotional wells of um, of, of his, um, of, you know, of, of childhood emotion and family emotion that he could bring to his parts um, using the method, which meant sort of you know, accessing accessing your own personal experiences. He had a, such a breadth of of um, of experience as a, as, a, as a young boy and young man, not all of it positive. I mean, he grew up in a, in a household that um, was very much, was quite abusive and violent. It, both his parents were alcoholics and his dad was very violent. So 
Um, you know, there was, there was trauma to he could access all of that stuff, and then coupled um, coupled with um, um, that um, that approach, he had uh, he, was in, he was acutely observant in a way that I just don't think ordinary people or even actors are. I mean, this guy was somebody who would study human behaviour to to an obsessive degree. Um, he would. Um, even in his later years, when he was famously more reclusive, he would still try it out in his car with a pair of binoculars and watch people, you know, in the streets and at bus stops and just see, you know, how people behave when, people, when others aren't looking. And he was just, that was, I mean, endless fascination with that, which he then applied to and made him a very good mimic. Um, he was incredibly good at, um, uh, uh, mimic and uh, adopting other accents and, um, and other personas and even stepping outside his own culture. I mean, I, I was fascinated by the fact of, of, of the range he displayed in the course of his career. Mm. He actually made quite a few films, more than you'd, you'd um, maybe expect. It was around 39 in total. And he, um, and you know, that included parts as various, um, um, you know, a South African in Dry White Season. Um, he played a German in The Young Lions. Um, he played an Englishman using an English accent many times. Italian-American in The Godfather, Mexican in Divas of Pato, and a Chinaman in Tea House, in Tea House of the York's Moon. I mean, he was a guy who just really took lots of chances and risks in a way that I, um, you know, I mean, I, I, we, we, you know, I just don't think other actors uh, did and have done since. Yeah. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, there was lots of, I, I said, uh, many things combined, I think, to make him um, uh, incredibly, incredibly special and um, and uh, rightfully venerated as, as as the best actor of his generation and um, and maybe all time. We're speaking with uh, Stephen Riley. He is the director, editor, and writer of this wonderful documentary, "Listen to Me, Marlon." Uh, and it, the, yeah, the film uh, and Marlon Brando really, as he explores, as we watch him or listen to him explore the the different aspects of. The, of the human behavior and how it relates to to his life, and he, he seemed like he was throughout his life uh, on a journey to of self discovery. And um, the, some of the footage that you found from his early appearances on television uh, were fantastic. The interviews, and uh, I, I particularly one that I will never forget is his appearance uh, with his father. Uh, now it wasn't mm-hmm. was it Jack Parr? No, it wasn't Jack Parr, but it uh, it wasn't the Edward R. Murrow, whatever the show was. It was it was Edward Murrow. It actually. wasn't Murrow. Yeah. Okay, uh, where yeah. he comes out, his father he comes out and, he, and they sort of introduce his father into into that. That was such an amazingly telling in the context of watching. Listen to me, Marlon. Knowing what we knew and then watching the two of them uh, on, on camera is is amazing. It was a fantastic find on your part. Uh, it was a very revealing moment, wasn't it? Because his father, um, when asked, and in, in, um, in the aftermath of Marlon being awarded an Oscar for On the Waterfront, um, Ed Murrow asks his father, is he proud of his son? Is he proud of Marlon? And his dad says, no, not particularly, not as an actor. I mean, the most bizarre um, comment you'd expect from a father, but it, it showed a lot. It showed Marlon. Marlon said that there were several things which governed his behavior through his life. Yeah. Um, in conversation, he said that one of them was um, um, a sense of um, um, inferiority, which was, I think, instilled a lot by his, by his, by his dad. 
Um, another was um, resistance to authority, which I think, again, was um, had a lot to do with his father figure um, uh, relationships. Um, and, then, and, then, and then also his trust issues. Yeah. So that he found it very difficult to trust people. And, um, and, and a lot of this could be traced back to his childhood. And Marlon would all, all often resort to that and look back to his childhood behaviors yeah. and say that, you know, we spend most of our life trying to overcome um, the bad habits that are instilled from um, the first 10 years of our life. That was very important for him to dissect that and really understand the relationships with his with his with his father and um, um, and, and 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 his mum. And, and the film seeks to do that. Yeah, it does. It does it beautifully. Uh, there's, the, I, if I'm not mistaken, in that same uh, clip, uh, <laughs> doesn't his father make a reference to that he could still take him in a fight? Wasn't that was that the? Oh uh, so, yeah, that's that's what Marlon, Marlon mentions. That he actually says he, he says he, he he brushes off his dad's comment and says that you know he could lick this guy with one hand. <laughs> obviously, there was a point where you know Marlon did did get um, uh, too big for his for his dad to to slap around, and his dad used to do that. Marlon said for no good reason when he was a kid. Yeah, and I, again, what looking through this lens of listen to me, Marlon, and seeing films like uh, Street Car Named Desire and others, there's a physicality to. Uh, Marlon, Brand- Marlon Brando's performances that is as important as his uh, it's a well it's an integral part of his acting style his physicality especially in the early years and his early um, roles uh, is is very important and uh, I go back to Streetcar Named Desire uh, which really kind of defined him uh, in so many ways in, in the perception of him as an actor uh, and you can't help but think about all of the physical abuse that he he was he endured as as a young man. It it it's just wow. It's just this is just it, not only is this such a wonderfully told story, but it's so clever. Um, the device of him digitizing his face. Uh, it, that, tell me tell me a little bit about that. How you how that came to be. Oh yeah, well it was um, it was just a lovely sequence of events, really. Because I, mean, I was trying to um, in, in developing the visual layers of the film, because there was, there was a lot of this audio available, but there weren't always pictures to uh, to coincide or match with that audio. So I was just trying to figure out a um, some sort of um, uh, yeah, visual landscape to the movie. Um, part of that was actually reconstructing Marlon's home. Um, in Mulholland Drive and uh, moving the camera within that space to create a, 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 a living space in the sense that Marlon was present within the, within the house as we heard his voice and um, the camera was almost operating as a ghostly presence. Um, and, uh, and then secondly, um, as you mentioned, scan or 3D head yeah. That, that appears within the house and also you know, appears full screen at, at moments in the film. Um, and, it was, um, and it's a digital version of Marlon who is that's lip syncing to this audio and um, and giving a performance of sorts and and um, relating um, most of the audience. But what the way um, that all came about was um, um, I found out um, from um, a conversation with one of the archivists that that Marlon um, had had his head scanned using a 3D um, uh, scanner that they um, was apparently used for. Um, the Terminator 2, when they were when they were trying to um, develop the liquid metal character, mm-hmm. um, Marlon um, had been told about this technology by a friend of his who's um, called Scott Billups, who's a special effects supervisor based in um, in California, and um, and we finally tracked Scott down. Scott 
um, had thought he had the, the scan film, but had to hunt them out and eventually found them. But they were distributed across many different drives, and it was a long, long journey, yeah. uh, which involved the animators at Passion Pictures in London um, that, um, that uh, allowed us to piece all these different bits of information together, decode it, because the code, the actual the software, was no longer um, used. Oh and, then and then revealed this amazingly detailed 3D sculpture of Marlon's head, which included this finest details of his eyelashes and pores on his skin. Um, and, um, and it was from that model that um, I could then bring in an actor to, to um, lip-sync and speak Marlon's words and um, then map the motion of the actor's face to this, to this 3D head and, um, and then create a performance for the film. Now, and, and in one of the, the things that he says is this 3D uh, Max Headroom. I think that's about as close to a cultural reference as I can think of uh, approach is that uh, he believed that in the future uh, that actors may become kind of irrelevant or, or obsolete and to see it in the way that it's portrayed in the film, I mean, it's hard to argue with with, with what he was saying. Um, it's just a yeah, it was nice. It was nice to sort of fulfill that, really, and, um, <laughs> and um, sort of yeah. I mean, that was Marlon's prophecy in a, in a sense that you know the actor that he would that he would give a performance through this um, through these digital scans. So um, I guess it was um, an enactment of that. Was there something in the making of Listen to Me, Marlon, that you didn't expect to find? Because you said you did a lot of research, uh, background research, and as you were listening to these, there's is there one or two things that truly surprised you uh, about Marlon Brando? Um, well, I didn't know really much at all. You know, when I started the research process, it was very long. I mean, even before I went into the edit, I just spent um, a good three months, three, four months just just reading books and meeting people and really trying to suss him out and figure out, you know, what his character was. Um, so a lot of it was um, surprising to me. But, you know, I was I was most interested in the fact that, you know, he was just so thought out and considered and very philosophical man and, um, and uh, was really trying to grapple with the big questions in life and, um, you know, deep philosophical questions about the meaning of existence, what's, the pur what's our purpose um, of, you know, life and... Um, and love and, and, and also, you know, deep insecurities and vulnerabilities and how honest he was in appraising that stuff. And, um, and it made him very, very approachable and, um, and fascinating figure. And, um, um, you know, he, he, he took me in, in all sorts of interesting directions in terms of reading and, and it was, um, you know, it was, a, it was a, a privilege to be educated by him, actually. Yeah, I, I, I would, you know, one, one last thing because, uh, about him, and just sort of going back to his dynamic, his, his dynamic personality. Uh, he really, and I, it's in a good, in a, the best way, I think, really seemed to gravitate to women. He really seemed to enjoy, enjoy their company. I think that's safe to say. But I, that's I was impressed by what I saw in him as, uh, as I just take it as a a, um, a, a mature man uh, a well as you described him well-rounded did you find that to be the case his his sort of perception of women given with his mom well, I mean, well to be honest I mean it's um, I mean his maturity I, I guess went so far because I mean, he, he had undeniable flaws 
Um, I mean, he was a deeply flawed person, and and yeah. I think. But what what was um, interesting was how he was diagnosing himself, and he was understanding his own flaws and was looking for solutions to them, and really wanted to, um, you know, center himself and 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 become whole. Because I think, you know, for much of his life, he felt crippled by, um, you know, various things I mentioned earlier: the sense yeah. of superiority, the issues with trust. Um, so, um, uh, so, his, so his relationships with women um, were, were were sometimes um, um, uh, it, it didn't end well. I mean, very often didn't. In Marlon, famously, mm. was you know he was, he was very much the womanizer. Um, he found it difficult to hold down relationships, partly because you know you never think it, but you know he admits to being very jealous. He said you know he felt insecure to close to women. He almost wanted to find out the point at which they would break and leave him much in the same way that he felt his mother had done through her alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and uh, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a long journey, I think, and, I'm not, uh, and, um, and I think he you know, got very close to the destination of actually um, trying to um, uh, deal with, those, mm-hmm. deal with those, those trust issues, which led him to... I think he was always very much the gentleman but, but in the moment with women, but he, he might abandon them and leave them himself before yeah. they left him. Mm-hmm. And um, and so you know that that I guess was a mistreatment of sorts. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It, again, I want to just remind our listeners: we're speaking with Stephen Riley. The film is "Listen to Me, Marlon," editor, director uh, Stephen Riley. Uh, it is a remarkable film. I. It is just so people know. It is screening in Los Angeles at the Landmark. This is the one on West Pico. Um, are you in town by any chance? Are you? Going to be... You know, I'm not at the moment. I'm, I'm in I'm in New York because we had because the, the, the film was opening here first. Okay. But I know, but I know that for the for the um, for the screening in LA, um, uh, Marlon's daughter and uh, and the producers will be um, do, uh, doing Q and A's at the Landmark. Okay. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So so and again, yeah, at the Landmark, this is on West Pico. It's you can't miss it. at I, at Westward Westwood Boulevard. People in Los Angeles know where that is. Um, and so his daughter will be there for a screening. I assume like around the seven. Let's see here. I've got a. There's a seven twenty. So, so, so I think it's tonight. Is it the thirty first? Yes. So, so Rebecca Rebecca Brando will be there this evening, and um, John Batson, the producer. Okay, seven twenty, and John uh, Batsik uh, will be there as well uh, for the screening. And um, congratulations uh, on this. Uh, you have really given us a tremendous uh, gift here to the opportunity to get to know Marlon Brando uh, in the most intimate sort of way. It is just a terrific film, terrific document. Thanks so much. Thank you, Stephen Riley. As I said, editor, writer, director of the film. Listen to me, Marlon. Take care. You too. Thank you. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.